Welcome. Today we're going to be doing uh, chapter 26 from S.M. Houghton's Sketches from Church History, a reading and commentary on that. And today we're going to be going over John Calvin in Geneva. But before we do, let's go ahead and pray. God, our gracious Father, we thank you, Lord, for raising up men like Calvin who were fearless in the defense of the faith. They were men with feet of clay, men uh, who were of like substance to us, but men with tremendous gifts and a willingness to be spent in your service. Give us the same kind of gifting and help us now to learn from the life of, and work of John Calvin uh, as together we uh, seek to build the kingdom where we are as he built it in Geneva and then spread the gospel throughout the world. Now, Lord, please be with us and be uh, our helper in understanding. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. By the middle of the 16th century, John Calvin was the dominant figure of the Protestant Reformation. After Luther's death in 1546, all who had been become convinced of the errors of the Roman Catholic Church looked to Calvin for guidance and instruction. The geographical position of Geneva and the growth of the reform movement in most parts of Europe caused the city and its leader to be regarded as a rallying point. This was especially the case with those who had fled from uh, persecution. Geneva became a haven of refuge to Protestants whose lives were endangered. Its gates were ever open to provide fugitives with security. One such person was John Knox of Scotland. Young men often went to Geneva to be prepared for the work of the ministry of the gospel in Central and Western Europe. It was in Geneva that several of the English and Scottish refugees set about the task of preparing a new translation of the whole Bible into English. The first edition was printed in 1560, and it, be and it soon became the favorite version of Protestants in England and Scotland. Of course, Calvin was not directly involved in its production, but as he had a very great influence upon those responsible for it, in an indirect way, he and his teachings were related to it, and especially perhaps to the marginal notes which belonged to it. It was a potent influence in promoting the growth of Puritanism in England, even when the famed authorized version of the Bible appeared in 1611. Another 30 years passed before the Geneva Bible ceased to be printed. And just a quick note, uh, a lot of people don't realize that, that the Geneva Bible really was the, the Bible of the pilgrims who came over uh, and settled in uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and so it was uh, the seminal um, uh, Bible. In fact, the, one of the reasons why the 1611 KJV Bible was actually uh, published was because uh, King James thought that the Geneva wanted to um, blunt the influence of the Geneva Bible with its Reform Study Notes. He wanted specifically an Anglican Bible, and he wanted uh, a Bible which uh, his arch-Arminian uh, Archbishop Laud could uh, use, uh, one that uh, included the word bishop, for instance, uh, for the word episcopoi, overseer. So um, uh, there's a lot of fundamentalists who, divide the K uh, who uh, defend the KJV not realizing that it was a Bible designed to beat down um, the, uh, the Protestant uh, and certainly the, uh, the Reformed Bible. I'm sure the uh, uh, independent fundamental Bible, uh, Baptists wouldn't be upset that the, um, uh, the Geneva Bible was designed, or rather the KJV was designed to uh, hurt the Geneva Bible, or hurt the sales of the Geneva Bible at least. Um, <clears throat> Never had a European city before Calvin's time been organized so thoroughly for a religious purpose as Geneva. The aim was the regulation by the church of the lives of its members and of the whole life of the community. 
with great regularity, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Geneva was divided into three parishes. Five ministers and three assistant ministers were appointed to conduct services at daybreak, noon, and in the afternoon on Sundays. There were services on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in addition. 17 sermons a week in a city of 13,000 people. Calvin himself, as we have mentioned previously, preached regularly in the cathedral. Communion was held quarterly. Attendance of worship was enforced by fines for avoidable absence, and men were appointed to deal with delinquents. As for the education of youth, all was carefully planned. The very young were taught the catechism and provided with lessons in the three um, lessons in the church. Then came the school, where not only the three R's were taught, but also the Latin and Greek classics, together with logic and even rhetoric. All who were capable of it were taught the Greek New Testament. Naturally, much attention was paid to the doctrine of Christianity. There was regular instruction in scripture, much psalm singing, and diligent attendance on sermons and various lectures. Beyond the school was the academy or university, the crown of the educational system. Twenty-seven lectures were given each week. At its head was the rector, who was actually in charge of the entire educational system. There were professors of Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, the arts and theology. Prizes were awarded, and diligence and efficiency met with praise. There is no doubt that in Calvin's time, and for many years afterwards, Geneva produced scores, if not hundreds, of highly educated men. As for the mass of citizens, a wide variety of laws regulated their eating and drinking, their buying and their selling, their dress and their morals. But it must be remembered that all such laws were freely made by the governing body of the city, and the greater part of the citizens not only accepted them, but welcomed them. Their lives were regulated at every point. Naturally, there were discordant elements also. Not all the city's inhabitants wished to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly as scriptures and the laws required. And from time to time, Calvin was troubled, but he never relaxed his efforts to lead men in the ways of the Lord, and on the whole, he met with remarkable success. His character and influence were known to all, and met by all, and felt by all, rather. One matter calls for special comment, for Calvin's enemies never forgot to charge a certain matter against him, dun, dun, dun. namely, the death of the heretic Servetus which occurred while Calvin was substantially in control of Geneva, though not a member of his actual governing body, his power and influence being moral and spiritual other than official. Servetus denied the doctrine of the Trinity and the Roman Inquisition, had already condemned him to death by burning, but he escaped from the hands of the Romanists and unwisely entered Geneva, where he was identified and put on trial for heresy. He became defiant as he tried to defend himself and even accused Calvin of being a heretic and demanded his death. But the whole of Protestant Switzerland was firmly on the side of Calvin and the Genevan Council. The latter ordered that Servetus be burned alive. Calvin asked for a milder form of death for the heretic, but did not gain his point. Calvin was certainly at fault, not, of course, in opposing the heresy of Servetus. He exposed it thoroughly, but in accepting the widely held belief of the age that heretics should be put to death. We are all prone to judge men of former days by the standards of the age in which we ourselves live. In the 16th century, unhappily, it was common practice to sentence men to death for heresy and that by burning. The Roman Church put countless numbers of Protestants to death, even as the Roman emperors had done in days of old. They would have put Servetus to death by burning if they could have taught him. And unhappily, in this respect, Calvin was not free from the errors of his times. But let it be emphasized that he did not wish Servetus to be sent to the stake. It has been rightly remarked that although in the 16th century thousands of Protestants suffered the same fate at the hands of Roman Catholic persecutors, Calvin has been constantly vilified for his part in this single execution. Perhaps God allows blemishes in his own children while on earth 
in order that men should not idolize them and put them, as it were, on pedestals. Now, while um, just a few comments on the Servetus issue. Now, if you have ever debated an Arminian uh, on, in line, and I, I know probably many of you have at some point in your life or had a conversation with them, one of the first things that happens when you're um, discussing Calvinism is that you'll get an ad hominem argument about uh, Servetus. Calvin burned Servetus, therefore Calvinism is null and void. Well, that's an ad hominem uh, attack. It doesn't prove anything uh, about Calvin. Uh, first off, we need to remember that Calvin uh, did not himself burn Servetus and did not wish to burn Servetus. That was the city council. Uh, Calvin did, however, uh, favor the prosecution of heretics. Now, um, uh, Houghton isn't quite giving all of the story about Servetus. First off, Servetus was was a rank heretic. He denied the Trinity. Uh, there are men who, um, uh, who, in um, opposing Calvin, try to make Servetus Orthodox and Baptist somehow. Uh, this is not this is not true. He was not in any way an Orthodox Christian. Uh, Servetus uh, had been fleeing, obviously, the Inquisition uh, in Spain. He had also. Uh, come to Geneva before and been banned from the city. So um, he had been exiled uh, from Geneva. He was never to return to it. Uh, he did return, was spotted, and uh, in a, he was spotted because he went to the cathedral to hear Calvin preaching, uh, and um, he, he put himself in public. This was a man who, uh, who held his life very cheaply. Uh, he did things that were going to obviously put his life in danger again and again. And he was a man who promulgated terrible errors uh, in the name of the Reformation as well. In other words, he was one of the, uh, at this point in time, there were many men who were propagating not just the truth like Calvin, but were propagating errors like Servetus uh, and the Anabaptists. And um, uh, his doctrine was also spreading abroad. Um, and it was not helping, obviously, the, the Protestant cause in any sense. So we need to remember that um, uh, there were men who did good, uh, and then there were men like Servetus uh, who, who did poorly. But in any event, the, um, the idea that you know, Calvin is to be dismissed uh, because Servetus was put to death by the Genevan Council for, uh, for heresy is, is a ridiculous charge. Uh, if that's the, uh, the case, then uh, we, have to, uh, we would have to dismiss uh, most you know, of the... Uh, most of the governments of the world that, uh, as, as unjust, that had the death penalty um, at any point, uh, or which persecuted or prosecuted men for heresy. The Dutch did as well in the Dutch Republic, for instance. They prosecuted heretics. Um, there are many men who, uh, who object to any sort of, uh, obviously, intermingling between the church and the state. And I'm not a big fan of, of church-state <laughs> confabulation. I'm not a Constantinian, however, uh, we, we do need to remember that at the time when Calvin uh, was in Geneva, the church and the state were essentially one uh, in many senses. It was just which church are you going to have, which religion are, is going to be the religion of the people. Um, Calvin possessed a very weak and sick, uh, sickly physical frame. His body was also weakened by fasting and study, for he passed days without food and nights without sleep. It would have been a laborious task for a robust man to accomplish what Calvin did. Much more was it so for one of frail physique and constant illness. But the reformer never shrank from the multitude of his tasks. If he was not preaching, he was writing commentaries. If not writing commentaries, he was penning letters. For he carried on a vast correspondence, and at every turn he was counseling others, or in other ways promoting the cause of the kingdom of God. 
Unhappily, his wife died only nine years after their marriage, and for the rest of his life, Calvin lacked the attention that only a wife can supply. Calvin's greatest immediate influence was exerted through his teaching. Uh, students thronged his lectures when they returned to their homelands to meet the demands for Protestant witness which Europe provided. They carried in their minds and hearts the great truths of Scripture, which Calvin had expounded in their hearing, and spread the light of the gospel to all parts. Most of them proved to be workmen who needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. That the Reformation was a work of God is clearly seen in the men whom God chose to bring about, each in his time and place. The cornerstone of the building of God's church is his own son who remains immovable and unchangeable. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The upper structure had become dilapidated, and the forerunners of the Reformation, Wycliffe, Huss, and Savonarola, had begun to tear down parts of it. Then Luther came. He completed the raising of the upper structure, and then set up the new structure, solid and strong, resting firmly upon the foundation of God's word. The completion of the building, however, was left to John Calvin, a master builder. His keen mind enabled him to read in more detail the plans and specifications of the, for the, great, of the greater work, and in accordance with them, he performed his part so well and so accurately that to this day his work remains an abiding influence in the Christian church. There are some who pour scorn on Calvin and his work, and among them are men who speak as if Calvin taught nothing but the doctrine of predestination, but it is not so. Calvin taught the whole counsel of God, and even concerning predestination, none can truthfully say that what Calvin wrote and preached in any way departed from Scripture. What Scripture taught, Calvin believed, and what Calvin believed he proclaimed to all who would listen to him, and from his own day to ours. Uh, men of discernment have regarded him as perhaps the greatest of all Christian teachers since the time of the apostles. One of the things that uh, people misunderstand uh, about Calvin is uh, when they think about Calvin and Calvinism, they immediately think predestination, as though that was the only doctrine he taught. That was just one of many doctrines that uh, you'll find, for instance, in his writings, you'll find in the uh, Institutes of Christian Religion. So, um, and when you come to the Institutes of Christian Religion, you have to read quite a way before you get to uh, Calvin writing on soteriology and predestination, for instance. Uh, his work was primarily uh, exegetical. He was opening up and expounding the scriptures on a, on a constant basis. He wrote more sermons than systematic theologies, and his sermons are well worth listening to. Uh, and, uh, well, obviously you can't um, get Calvin preaching them. He was a little before the time of audio, but you can find um, other men reading his sermons, uh, the ones that are extant. Sadly, there were some that, uh, although they were copied down, the, the copies were destroyed uh, in the time between Calvin and us. But nonetheless, uh, predestination was not the only thing that he taught, and not by far. Uh, two or three years before he died, Calvin became even more sickly than usual. If that were possible, his friends advised him to curtail his labors, but to them he replied, Do you want the Lord to find me idle? He had to be carried to meetings which he wished to attend. In March 1564, he was taken to the city hall to attend a meeting of the council, and he thanked them for what they had done for him. Several weeks later, the little council of the city visited him on his sickbed. The end came on the 27th of May, his mind remaining clear to the last. He was 54 years of age. Like a candle, he had consumed away so that he might give light to his age. His funeral was simple, and lest his followers in their grief should create the cult of a new saint, he was buried in the common cemetery of the city without a tombstone, so that as in the case of Moses, no man knoweth of his sepulchre unto this day. 
His treatises and commentaries are his monuments, and they will continue to be printed and studied as long as there are those who cling to the eternal truths of Scripture and as long as there is a church militant on earth. So we should be thankful for the example of John Calvin and follow it in our own lives. Um, I'm not saying, of course, that we should work ourselves to death like Calvin did. Um, It might be uh, wiser to spread out our work Uh, and to follow a little more even pattern and to take care of our bodies as good stewards. But nonetheless, this was a man who was spent in a time of great urgency. He saw the need of the church. Uh, He felt the fire to preach God's word in his bones, and he did not shirk it. We need more John Calvin's men of a prophetic countenance and a persevering spirit. Uh, I pray that the Lord will raise them up in our own time. I pray that listening to me, perhaps, is uh, the next John Calvin uh, who will go out and who will preach the word boldly and fearlessly and once again restore the church uh, to the glory that God uh, intended for her as the church militant here on earth, looking forward to that day of the far greater glory we will have when we all enter into the church triumphant. In the meantime, I bid you all adieu, and I hope you have a good Lord's Day. I will speak to you later, God willing, here or hereafter.